0: Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come to this place at this appointed time. And we do so because you, has, you have ordained these things to be. And yet we come, Lord, with weak hearts. We come believing, Lord, and yet we pray and we sing, help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to see Christ Jesus more clearly. Help us, Lord, to serve our Savior more faithfully. Help us, Lord, to proclaim him and love him more dearly. Help us, Lord, this day. Indeed, help our unbelief. We pray, Lord, that you would come by your Spirit, for we know that your word spiritually discerned, and the only hope we have of understanding is that your spirit would come. Empower us afresh. Fill us anew so that we may indeed know what your spirit is saying to the church, even East Point Church this morning. Change us. May we not be the same people walked in this place, we walk out and we get a renewed sense of your power, and your presence, and your purpose for our lives. This we pray. Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, there is a passage of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 16 it tells us that a man's gifts makes room for him and brings him before the great. A man's gifts makes room for him. In other words, the gifts that God gives us sooner or later by his mercy and in his time, those gifts are going to be provided for in such a way as they will be used. The glory of God for the good of his people. The only thing is, is that oftentimes those gifts have to be refined, and they get refined through time and through pressure, and oftentimes even through pain. If, you have any, if you're anything like me, then you have learned over time that the most, one of the most difficult things to do in the Christian life is indeed wait on God. Wait on God for those gifts to be refined. I think David discovered this firsthand. Discovered, like most of us, that while we often find ourselves anxious and in a hurry for God to move, we often find that God is not so anxious. God is not in a hurry. He moves on his own timetable, and he accomplishes his purposes according to his own plan. And whenever and however often we find ourselves patient enough, we discover that God's plan and purposes are always best. Without fail. So we see in David's life, as we have already seen David's life since leaving off caring for his father's sheep, even according to David's own estimation, have been less than perfect. In fact, his life has been fraught with challenges and and difficulties. But we find that uh, through it all that God has preserved David. God, God has persevered with him and is now set. And is now set to make a way for David. To put David in the place where God had promised David would be. To establish David and to grant David the place where his gifts would finally blossom. As they are made a way for and he is set before the great. He is set before the people. Finally. Time is coming for God to establish David as the beloved king of Israel. However, one more time, those gifts have to be refined. They have to be refined in the fiery furnace of God's trial. One more time. We come to chapter 30. We see that the scene is set for David. Samuel is dead. Saul has but only a few days left, according to the prophecy that has been spoken over him. And so the scene is set for David to come forth as the leader of the nation, the boy. The boy who was shepherd over his father's sheep now is finally set to be to become shepherd over the nation. But first, David once again has to endure hardship. So to test his mettle, to establish his leadership, leadership over the nation. The best of biblical leadership, you understand, points us away from itself. Points us to Christ. This is how we know that David is really ready to be leader of the nation. For in his leadership, he points people away from himself. And he points people to God. I don't think he's ever been more faithful in his leadership than we shall see this morning to examine this wonderful text. We'll see four movements here in this scenario that David finds himself in that ultimately points us to Christ. Away from David, away from ourselves, we see Jesus. First, there's going to be this revolt. Then there's going to be a request, followed by a rescue. Finally, we're going to see this great reward. But before we get to those four, notice that in verses 1 and 2, there's this great disaster. There's a great disaster that befalls David and his men. Now, if you get some context here, David and his men had just left off from camping out with King Achish and the Philistines. And King Achish had to reluctantly dismiss David and send David away. Why? Because King Achish and the Philistines were on the verge of attacking Israel once again. The Philistines were set for attacking Israel, and David, in fleeing from Saul, had set up camp with the Philistines and had begun to fight with the Philistines and to raid with the Philistines. But now the Philistines were set to attack Israel and the army of Saul once again. And while Achish had all confidence that David would be faithful in attacking Israel, Achish's lieutenants and his generals did not share his confidence. And you can imagine going into battle against Israel with David and his men at your side. He told Achish, I don't think so. I have no confidence that once the swords start getting pulled and blood starts flowing, that David doesn't turn on us in the midst of the battle. Sorry, king. I'm not going against Israelites. But David riding with us. And the king reluctantly tells David and his men that their service is no longer needed. He reluctantly sends David away. Once again, what do we see? We see God's preserving of David. Preserving David from once again making a foolish mistake. Of doing something that would eventually mar his rise to the throne and bring irrepute upon the nation. God saves him once again. And sends him on his way. Being dismissed from King Achish and the Philistine army, David and his men decide to head for home. For home at this time is in Diglag. That is where their wives and that is where their children, that is where they have set up camp. This is where they have established their refugee camp as they have fled from Saul and his minions. Wasn't the best of places living in as a refugee never is. But it was home. But it was at least three days' journey where David had been amongst the Philistines. And his men, he began to make the track home. You can imagine that as as they were making their way home to that place known as Ziklag, that that, that their anticipation was growing. Anticipating seeing their wives. Anticipating reuniting and fellowshipping with their children. Anticipating sitting around and gathering the families together and having a, a meal and rejoicing that once again God has been Gracious. And allow them to reunite with their family after all these months. It's going to take three days to get there. We can imagine even as they grew closer and closer to Ziglag. The anticipation and the anxiousness in their hearts began to increase. And even as they grew closer, you can imagine that their, that their steps through, grew faster. Their pace quickened. Anticipating, anticipating being home, home, home. Therefore, we can also imagine the pain, the hurt, and the disbelief as they grew near the zigzag. They saw smoke. They smelled the ruin. And the closer he got, the greater the pain came. They didn't see family, they didn't see friends. They didn't see wives, and they didn't see children. But what they saw were homes destroyed, livestock in ashes. While they were away, the Amalekites had raided Ziklag, burned their camp to the ground, and had taken off their women and their children. When they got home. There was no home. Who are these Amalekites? They had long been the enemies of Israel. They were essentially what we would know today as terrorists. They were just terrorists. They, they first attacked Israel, you might recall, in Exodus chapter 17. This, this young, weak nation had just come out of Egypt, and here comes. Amalek terrorizing once again Moses and Joshua and the nation. And God promised at that time that this wicked terrible nation would one day be destroyed from under heaven on the face of the earth. And here they are once again attacking the people. Vicious, unprovoked and when David and his men saw their homes, they were devastated. They saw that their homes and their possessions were destroyed and their wives and their children carried off to be sold into slavery or even worse. They were broken. They were broken. The Bible says that they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now, it was a great disaster. But notice also that there was even a greater distress for the pain and the devastation was almost unbearable. And they wept and they wept and they wept and they wept until there was no more tears to weep. You know, there's, there's one type of pain that is almost the expected pain. You, you could see it coming. A grandparent who... It's getting older and sickly and in and out of the hospital for a time. You can see it and you know that sooner or later you're going to have to experience the pain of the loss of that person who is so dear to you. And the pain is going to be real and it's going to hurt, but you can see it coming. But beloved, as we know, there is an altogether different pain when the unexpected comes. Not a grandparent, but a child. The phone call that comes and says that there's been an accident and the wife of the husband is gone. That is an altogether. Different pain. It is the pain of expecting joy and celebration and then receiving from God the very opposite. And this is the pain that these men are experiencing. The unexpected pain. The the anticipation of joy and celebration. But instead, God gives them heartache. Loss. They weep. They weep. Job and 7 says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you were out at the bonfire in, in Thomaston, you would have known the truth of that. Illustrated for you as the fire grew, so did the sparks and they flew upward. So is trouble. Job 14 and 1 says, man is born of a woman is of a few days and they are full of trouble. We live in this life long enough and we are sure to experience all sorts of pain and trial, frustration and hurt, abandonment and loss. Psalm 30 and 5 says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And someone has said, yeah, and disaster strikes the next afternoon. That's what happened with David. Just as you might anticipate him getting over the weeping, the loss of all of his possessions. then the trouble heightens. For David becomes greatly troubled, the Bible says, not just from the loss of his wives and possessions, but now because everyone is now blaming it on him. Now all of his men have turned on him, and here we see the revolt. David not only faced the the, the trial of losing his wife and his possessions, but now his men turning on him. There was a revolt in verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and as if the pain of losing his family was not enough. Suddenly his men turn on him and they blame him for their loss. There's talk of insurrection, even killing David. Why? Because, beloved, they're just like us when trouble hits. We always look around for someone to blame. We always look for someone to blame, and David is an easy target. Why? Because leadership is always an easy target. It's all with Moses, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and they get in a tough spot, and immediately what they do—they blame Moses. It's so all with Samuel. Nation gets in a tough spot and, and, and suddenly they look around and they say, well, Samuel is not a king for us. Samuel is not the right judge for us. Let us do away with Samuel. God, give us a king like the other nations. Samuel is inadequate. And now with David, one who had led them, providing for them, guided them in their running and escaping from Saul the one that God had used to preserve them and protect them now they turn on David question that is has to be asked the rational question that should have been asked will is will killing David bring back one child Will killing David recover one wife? And the answer to that question is no. But this, beloved, is really what makes leadership hard. What makes leadership hard is is that leadership is often misunderstood. Misunderstood because biblical leadership rarely gets or even takes the opportunity to defend itself. Trusting, rather, in the God who judges. So it is with David. You can see the growth. You will see the maturity. As in the face of this trial, David does not defend himself. And he pours himself. He leans himself on the Lord, knowing that it is the Lord who is taking him low. Steve is at a low point. I mean, can you imagine how, how low David is right now? God has brought this man down. That at a low point, surely the lowest yet. Do you know that when God brings you down to that low point, he only does it for the purposes of ultimately bringing you high? And therefore, the message that we see here, even in the midst of the revolt, is don't fear the valley. David is down in a valley. Wife gone. Possessions gone. Friends gone. Men have turned against him, seeming like all is lost. And yet he reminds us in Psalm 23, verse 4: even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Don't fear the valley. Don't fear the valley. Job says in 13 and 15: though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Don't fear the valley. Habakkuk chapter 3, again in verse 17. In the midst of the Babylonian captivity on the horizon, in the midst of God's people being taken over by an evil an evil, uh, a nation, and God's people wondering why and how this could possibly happen. Habakkuk prophesied. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no flute, for no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. And no herd in the stall. That's David. That's David. He gets back to Ziglag. And there is no fig tree in Blossom. The olive tree has failed. There are no herds in the stall. Notice what it says. Oh, there be no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Why? This is what Jesus said. Right. As he's preparing his disciples to, to that he's going to leave and leave them in the world, they will no longer have his presence immediately with them. With them. Jesus says in sixteen and and, and chapter sixteen and verse thirty three of John, "In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have." overcome the world It's coming. you're going to have tribulation. there will be valleys. Don't fear the valley. Why? Because I've already overcome it. I've already conquered it. you already have that victory. First John. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God has what? Overcome the world. Overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That's it. That's it. You don't fear the valley. Why? Because you have faith in God who is not just the God of the mountaintops, but he is a sovereign Lord who reigns down in the valleys. You don't fear valleys. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That Jesus is the one who died. That Jesus is the one, even more, who has been raised again from the dead. That Jesus is the one who is coming back again. Therefore, you need not fear the valley. Because he is the one who has overcome through the cross and has promised. That you will overcome too. And so what does David do? In the midst of the revolt, he doesn't fear the valley. But what does David do? He makes a request. He makes a request. Tells the, the priest, bring me the ephod. And it says that David inquired of the Lord. When the men turned against David, David didn't turn against the men. What did he do? He turned to God. When the men turned against David, David did like Hezekiah. David did like Nehemiah. David turned his face to the wall. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, he made his request known to God. David lost his family. David lost his friends. David had lost his following. And he's on the verge of losing his future, Bob. But he hasn't lost his faith. He makes his request known to God. He calls on God. She'll remind us, she'll, you need to call on God. I know it's trite, and I know we have trivialized it in our time, but I want to tell you this morning that there is still power in the name of Jesus. And you need to call on Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. James tells us, call for the elders. Call for the pastors. Call for others to come pray for you. But before you do any of that, call on Jesus. Don't call me if you haven't called on Jesus. Because if you call me, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call on Jesus. You got to believe. there is still power in the name. I know we sophisticated and all dressed up. And I know we reformed. But I'm here to tell you that there is still power in the name. And you can call on him. The old saints used to sing a song. That Jesus is on the main line. Tell him what you want. Jesus is on the main line. Tell him what you want. We don't sing it anymore because we probably don't believe it. But he's still on the main line. And you can tell him. That's what David did. David called on God. And notice what the Bible says he did. David strengthened himself, encouraged himself in the Lord. Oh, beloved, that's key. That's key. If you don't get anything else this morning, get this. What a marvelous truth it is that we can encourage and strengthen ourselves in the Lord. You can. You can. He said, How? How do you do that? Let me give you three ways you might encourage yourself and strengthen yourself in the Lord. As David did. The first one is to realize and to remember that God is with you. That God is with you. And this is the greatest and most reassuring promise in the Bible, that God himself says, I am with you. He said to Abraham, he said to Isaac, he said to Jacob, he said to Joshua, chapter 1 and verse 5, he tells Joshua, as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. He said it to the prophets in the Old Testament. He said it to the disciples in the New Testament. In fact, the coming of Jesus into the world was a proclamation that he was Emmanuel, God with Jesus with you. How do you encourage yourself in the Lord? By remembering that when others walk out of the fire, Jesus comes walking in. Remembering that when others walk out of the emergency room, Jesus comes walking in. Remember that when others walk out of the funeral home, Jesus comes walking in. Remember, 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 Stefan, you may not always have mommy and daddy, but you will always have Jesus. Remember, remember that when all others fail, Jesus never dies. For he has promised, lo, I am with you even to the ends of the earth. he's With you. With you. You encourage yourself by remembering Jesus is with me. But but not only remembering that Jesus is is with you, remember also that he's in you. You encourage yourself by reminding yourself that the one who has promised to be with me has now come and taken residence up in me. He's in me. It's an amazing truth that within every believer, there is the power to turn from ourselves and to turn to God. It's been given to us. It's in us. God is not just out there, detached from us, some unmoved mover, but he has come. And as Galatians chapter 1 and verse 27 says, Christ is in us our hope of glory. It's in us. There is a power within every Christian that brings light out of darkness. It's a power within every Christian that can bring hope out of despair, that can bring joy out of sorrow. What Paul said. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. But if Christ is in you, and your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. There is life within you. No matter what is happening around you, there may be death and destruction and sorrow all around you, but within the Christian, there is life. it is life-changing, circumstance-changing life. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, I pray, Paul says, "I, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. In your inner being. There is a power that comes and strengthens you by the spirit of Christ in your inner being so that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor where in our souls. I got an anchor. And it holds me fast. And it's down in my soul. When all around me gives way, my anchor holds fast. I can encourage myself with that. So the billows may roll and the waves may beat. I got an anchor, and it holds me fast. Why? That's 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, greater is he who is where? In you. Where is he? In you. He's in you. And he who is in the world. Remember, that the God who is with you, the God who is in you. Christ Jesus, our hope of glory. You encourage yourself by remembering that he's with you. You encourage yourself by remembering he's in you. Well, then you encourage yourself and strengthen yourself by remembering he's for you. He's for you. He's for you. You know what? David no longer had house. No longer had a city. He no longer had a a home. But he still had a God. He still had a God. And he knew that God was still in control. It will strengthen and encourage your soul when you remember this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What shall we say then to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No matter how. Dark, it seems. God is for you. God is for you. Remember the promise. In Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Why? Because God is for you. He's always for you. No matter what else is against you, God is always for you. And if God is for you, it matters not what or who is against you. Because God is going to have a final say. He's going to have a final say. This is what Paul and Silas reminded us in, in Acts chapter 16, that they are languishing there in the Philippian jail in the midnight hour. What did they do? They begin to encourage themselves in the Lord. How? By singing and praying and remembering that God is with them, that God is in them, and that God is for them. I don't know what they sung, but I can imagine what they sung late in the midnight hour. God's going to turn it around. He's going to work in your favor. That's what they sung, eh? And around? And And so they sung, and they encouraged themselves in the Lord because they knew God, no matter how dark it is, they understood that God was for them, that God was in them, that God was with them. So it was with David made a request. He got an answer, didn't he? And led to the great rescue. David rescued all. After David had prayed, God told him that he would overtake the Amalekites and rescue their family. God not only gave him the promise, but also God gave him the provision for the promise. Why? Because he provided David with a guide, an Egyptian who was a former slave to the Amalekites. And he knew exactly where the Amalekites were and was willing to leave and lead David there. And when David gets to where the Amalekites are, notice what the Bible says in very succinct but clear language. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And notice what it says. David covered all. All that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his wives. And notice what it says again. Nothing was missing whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. Why? Notice what it says again. David brought back all. All of it. All of it. You know, the absolute nature of God's work in us and for us should amaze us. It should amaze us. David recovered all. Brought back all and nothing was missing. This reminds us and it should remind us that God doesn't do anything halfway. My mother used to tell us all the time and I keep trying to (laughs) drill it in my kids head. You do it right the first time and you don't have to do it again. I was hard learning it and so are they. God does it right the first time. And he gets it all. Understand that? You know he saves totally. Saves totally. Totally saves. John chapter 6 and verse 39. Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. How many are you gonna raise up, Jesus? All of them. All of them. Because when I came to save, I came to save all of them. I'm not losing one. Because God saves totally. But he doesn't just save totally. He sanctifies completely. Sanctifies completely. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 The Bible says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Completely. There's not going to be a half sanctified people in heaven. When Christ comes, there will be no more sanctification because the sanctification will be complete. You will be completely holy. Mind, soul, and remarkably, in body, completely. God doesn't halfway do anything. Not only does he save totally and he, satis- and he sanctifies completely, he satisfies fully. Satisfies fully. Those who come to God in Christ Jesus know what it means to be fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. That's what he does. Paul tells the Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, and may God... And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How many needs supply every need? Every need. Why? Because God is able, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 8, to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all you need... You will abound in every good work. Like David, Christ rescues all. He doesn't leave anybody behind. He gets them all. That's why he came. He came to get them all. Understand, beloved, there will be no weeping in heaven because Jesus couldn't save some that he wanted to save. The joy of heaven is that all those for whom Christ came to save are saved. That the full quota of sheep is met and 99 and a half won't do. The Lord saves them all. All of them. He came to save. He saves. And not one is lost. No, not one. What an awesome rescue it was. David recovered all. That leads us to our final point, doesn't it? And David shared in this reward. That was a great reward. David returned with the spoils of the victory. He came back by the brook of Besor. Now what happened at the brook of Besor? When David and his 600 men had set out from Ziglag on their way to find the Amalekites and rescue their wives and children. Once they got to the brook of Besor, 200 of the men couldn't go on anymore. You can imagine why? Imagine having fought with the Philistines, having traveled three days' journey to get to where home was supposed to be and to find that home was not there anymore. Heartache, stress, and pain can take its toll. And they were weary, emotionally weary, physically weary, spiritually weary, and they tried, they tried. But once they got to the brook of Besor, they looked at David and said, David, we can't go no further. We're tired. We need a rest. And again, you see here the shepherd. Of God's people. You see, the man after God's own heart. What does David do? He allowed the men to rest. They laid down the rest of their possessions, what meager possessions they had. And they said, You men, stay by this stuff, stick by the stuff. We'll go on. 400 men David takes and they rout the Amalekites. When they come back with the women, when they come back with the children, when they come back with all of the possessions, you can imagine the joy and how those who have been rested were revived by the brook when they saw David and their wives and their children and the possessions coming back and the joy that filled their hearts you do understand that everybody with David wasn't a saint. David had some worthless and wicked men in his ranks. There were some scoundrels running around with David. When they get back to the brook of Israel, they look at those two hundred. And they were not interested in sharing with those who did not fight. They were wicked and worthless because they were spiteful and ungrateful. They wanted to hoard the grace of God. They wanted to can the mercy of God. As if they could. And David says, oh, no, 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 no. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the ban that came against us. You know what the problem is? They thought themselves better and more deserving because they fought, because they carried the sword into the battle. But David knew better. And David thought all men the same. You know why? Because he understood that all they had and all they were was by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. It's like the parable of the laborers, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, where you see that the grace of God shows no favorites That those who come early who come late. There are no big eyes and little U's in the kingdom of God. It's all by grace. We make more people than God does. We really do. We make more people like John Piper than God does. We make more people like Tim Keller and Lecrae than God does. I find it even fascinating and quite disturbing that people make more of me than I know God does. Do you understand? Do you understand that the same grace that saved me or Piper or Cray or anybody is the same grace that saves you? No more, no less. The same grace that keeps me saved is the same grace that keeps you saved. No more, no less. The humble heart understands this because the humble heart is the grateful heart. The redeemed heart is the thankful heart because the redeemed heart knows what David knew, what Paul understood. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. For who, see, for who sees anything different in you, he you imagined David saying that, "What makes you to differ from these men? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Because all you have and all you are by the grace of God." So, David said, No, 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 no. We don't hoard the grace. We share it, we spread it around. Why? Because what God has for me does not hinder at all what He's going to do for you. And the grace that He pours into my life, you need not be afraid that there won't be any left over for you. Because Christ. Shares his reward with us. Why share the reward, David? Because Christ shares his reward with us. Why share the grace? Why why rejoice in the grace that others receive? Because Christ shares his reward with you. That's why you share it. That's why you rejoice in it. That's why you don't hoard it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 tells us that we are fellow heirs with Christ. This is an important truth to, to be reminded of, beloved, that Christ has an inheritance that he has earned. And you know he's the only one. Christ has an inheritance from God the Father that he has earned. It is spoils for victory. It is a booty. It is the riches of heaven. And they all belong to him. You know what he does? He comes to us who are too weak, too frail, too sinful. Sitting by the brook. And he says, here, share. In my reward. Why? Because salvation belongs to him. Salvation is Christ. You know, it's not yours. Job chapter 2 says this. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's Christ. It's his. And if you are saved, he has shared it with you this morning. That's the only way you are saved is it belongs to him and he has opened up his coffers and he says, Behold the salvation of the Lord. It is yours. You know sanctification belongs to him? too. It's his. It's not yours. You think you're growing in Christ? You think you're conquering sin? The only way you grow in Christ is because Christ is fully grown. The only way you conquer sin is because he has already conquered it. Sanctification belongs to him. He opens the coffers. And he says, Here, share in my holiness. You know what else? Glorification belongs to him too. Not yours. You think you think? You're going to get glorified on your own? You think you're going to stand in the presence of the holy and righteous God on your own? No! The only way that you stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God is because Christ has gone before you and he stands before the Father even now. He opens up his coffers of glorification and he says, here, share in my glory. Why? Because heaven belongs to him. It's his. It's not yours. You have no right to it. The only right you have is to the gates of hell. The only legitimate claim you have to eternity is an eternal existence in the damnation of hell. Heaven belongs to Jesus. It's his. He has earned it. He has paid for it with his own precious blood. And then he comes to you by the brook of the sword in your sinfulness, in your righteousness. And he opens up his coffers. He says, here's heaven. I want to share it with you. I want you to know the joy of heaven. You didn't earn it. You didn't fight for it. It's my reward. But now it's yours. you have any of these things, it is because you have been redeemed in Christ. If you have any of these things, it is because you have been restored in Christ. If you have any of these things, it is because you have been forgiven in Christ. All we have and all we are is because we are in Christ. Redeemed. Restored. Forgiven. Through Jesus' precious blood. Heirs of whose home? His home in heaven. Oh, praise our pardoning God. Here's, here's, here's the beauty of that song. This verse right here Dear Lord, receive the glory of each recovered soul. Who gets the glory? Of those recovered, who gets the glory? Of those redeemed. Who gets the glory of those restored? Not the ones restored. Not the ones redeemed. But The one who has done the recovery. For oh, who can tell the story of love that made us. Not ours. Not ours the merit. Be yours alone the praise. And ours thankful spirit to serve you all our days. A thankful spirit knowing the only reward we have is the one that he has earned. Christ Jesus, our Savior, who has rescued and recovered all, all this